Good morning. The reading today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And it's on the screen. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Please open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. It would uh, help you to understand and encourage me if you've got the Bible open on your lap in whatever form you see fit, electronic paper, parchment, scroll. (laughs) Um, I'd like you to confess. Confession is good for the soul, so hands in the air if this applies to you. Please put your hands in the air and I'll close my eyes, or most of them, I'll keep one open. Um, If you've ever put the wrong fuel in your car, or even worse, someone else's car. I see, I see one hand. I'll tell you who it is. Like one and a half hands. Um, it's a few people. Um, putting the wrong fuel in your car can have disastrous effects. It can make you kind of kangaroo hop down the road. Um, what's the matter? Oh, no, diesel in a petrol car or vice versa. Um, or even worse, diesel trying to put it in an electric car. That's uh, all sorts of problems. Um, so you can be kangaroo hopping down the road in your, uh, on, your, on your motorbike or in your car or van, what, what have you. Um, and not only does it cost you an arm and a leg or a mortgage to fill up your car, it also is going to cost you a lot of money to have it drained and, and repaired. Having the right fuel in your car is really, really important. Um, Thursday, just gone, did the, the manly task that I do a couple of times a year, which is get out the chainsaw. The chainsaw, that is my pride and joy almost above our children, but not that much. Um, and it didn't work. And so I got it out to, to chop down some, uh, some logs, and uh, it didn't work, so I had to empty it because the fuel had lost its potency. That happens to two-stroke engine oil. You need to take it out. You need to recharge it, literally replace it, put in some additive, and then it worked like a dream. Um, there's a problem with the fuel. In Acts 2, you've got God providing the fuel for his church. Uh, the uh, account of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven to earth. Heaven literally comes to earth in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The promise that God makes all throughout the Bible that he would send his spirit, God keeps and fulfills in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. 
as he sends his spirit from heaven to earth and into his people. There are many, many issues about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be fueled or filled to the fullness with the person of the Holy Spirit to do his work. Those questions will be addressed throughout the book of Acts. And some of them will be addressed here, but not all of them. But the person of God, the Holy Spirit, comes to every believer's heart in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Every believer who's gathered in Jerusalem, every God-fearing Jew, verse 5, from every nation under heaven who's in Jerusalem receives to the full, to the max, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission of God to the ends of the earth comes in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And so the church is born in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 because God wants to fulfill his promise, to keep his promise made through his word to empower his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, chapter 1, verse 8. And there are many, many sermons that always have three points at the Women's Bible Study on Friday morning. And before they made that profound statement, I'd already written four. So <laughs> fooey on you, um, but four points on this great passage of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. First of all, a subtle one. This is about outside power. Outside power. There are three phenomena that happen on this historic day of the day of Pentecost. But the first point is about outside power. Look at verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, mighty wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, February. In February, I was sunning myself in a faraway land and I made a phone call home to a wife who had her foot, I kid you not, one of her feet was on a trampoline in our back garden. Her voice was being extended to some of its capacity for the safety of Kimberly, who was uh, in the garden running around, and they were trying to put sufficient weight and ballast to stop our trampoline taking off. Now, there are many great photos on the internet of what happened in Storm Eunice back in February. There's pictures of the power of nature, which is the power of God under control, just bashing sea defences. And then there is, like something from Harry Potter, trampolines going through the sky. There was one I was going to put on, a trampoline on top of a chimney pot, on top of the apex of a roof of a house. Joking aside, Eunice did great damage. Great damage. And it shows the violence and the power, almost as it looks as if it were out of control, but it's not of nature. Look at what it says in verse 2. It does not say from the pen of Luke who wrote this book after his gospel. It does not say it was. It says it was like verse 2. And a subtle point as we think about the power that comes from outside of us. This is meaning that the people that were gathered there experienced something more than a psychologically shared phenomenon. This is not an internally generated group experience. This is something from the outside. It doesn't even say this is something that came from the outside. It's very specific in verse 2. They felt it, they heard it, they saw it. It was like 
a rushing of violent, a strong wind. But it says specifically, verse 2, from heaven. In other words, this is not something that is conjured up, like you have a, a shared experience at a concert. This is not something that can be uh, conjured up by all taking a tablet of the same label upon it. So you experience the same LSD-driven experience back in the 60s or the 70s. This is verse 2, heaven coming to earth. Something from the outside happening to the heart of every believer on the inside. This is God doing something for his people. This is a promise made and now a promise kept. I will send the Holy Spirit. I long to send you the Comforter, says Jesus in John chapter 14, 15 and 16. And then as God takes his son, he's ascended back to the heavens, Jesus now sends his Spirit. Our culture says if you have problems, if you have problems, they are always problems on the outside and you have problems on the inside, to help you meet those problems that are on the outside. All the resources you need for those problems that are on the outside, you just need to tap and literally find the hero inside of yourself. Say you had a tough upbringing that can be dealt with by counselling. Counselling is helpful, I'm not saying it's not. Say you've uh, been shaped by severe social prejudice. Say you've uh, been affected in some internal way. Say you've got political or economic uh, corruption in our midst. That's a problem on the outside. We have all the resources inside ourselves. The Bible says we do not. The biggest problem that we face is not external, it's internal. And we do not have the resources in and of ourselves to deal with the problems that we face. There is no hero inside of ourselves. We are fundamentally, profoundly self-centred people. And we're so self-centred individuals that we cannot see how self-centred we really are. And when you have one self-centred person who meets another self-centred person, you have profound problems. <coughs> Only one person can be at the centre of the universe. And I want it to be me. And you want it to be you. And that's where the heart of the problem starts from. It's a problem of the heart that we cannot deal with ourselves. If you have a problem, it's not me, it's you. That kind of summarises the problem with the world. You're the problem. No, I'm the problem. And so are you, and we do not have the resources to uh, heal our hearts. And that's why this subtle point from verse 2 is, God is doing something significant in this historical day of history. He is keeping a promise that he's made. And he is sending all the resources that we need from the heavens to change the whole of the earth as he sends himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is the hope we need. It's about outside power. But outside power produces, second point, inner wonder. Outside power produces inner wonder. Look at verse 3. The second phenomena is not a rushing wind. This is the second phenomena of three. They saw what seemed, verse three, to be, no, it seemed, seemed like a rushing wind, seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This is again very, very significant. 
all through the Old Testament, when God turns up in a localized, real manifestation of his person, it's always accompanied by fire, the picture of purity, a picture of holiness. When he's making a covenant with Abraham, that's uh, Genesis chapter 15. He appears as a smoking fire pot and flaming torch when he's guiding his people out of the Egyptian uh, hardship and slavery. How does he guide his people? At night with a pillar of fire and daytime a pillar of smoke or cloud. And then he leads them to the mountain of God in the Old Testament, to Mount Sinai. And then he descends in a loud, booming, authoritative sound of a voice with a thunder and with fire when he's speaking to Isaiah. It's a picture of his purity and power. God turns up, it's overwhelming, it's intolerable, it's unbearable, it's fatal to see the presence and person of God. No one sees the personal presence of God and lives. Do you realise what's happening on the day of Pentecost? Moses in the Old Testament sees a burning bush. Now on the day of Pentecost, when God, when heaven comes to earth, what happens? Every believer becomes a burning bush. They have the presence of God inside of them. Not outside, a power has come from heaven to earth so that every believer is now a burning bush. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit. Every believer enjoys the power and presence of God Almighty in their very selves. Every single believer, the tongues of fire rested on every believer. Now, who was there? The apostles were there. They had a, quite a lot of one-to-one with Jesus. The disciples were there. Men and women were there. Boys and girls were there. Hierarchy was just ripped up. Everybody. It's called flat management. Everybody receives the same presence and power and indwelling of the Spirit of God. So no hierarchy at this point. Well, okay. But what does it feel like? I mean, what's it like? What's the point? What's the purpose? Say this actually happened. What's it like? What does it mean? What's the point? Well, God promised it and God fulfills his promise. But what does it mean? Let's do some thinking. In Luke chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descends on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ. We see the heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descends on the Son of God. And God speaks, very rarely does God speak, it's three times in the Gospels. God speaks and says, here is my son, whom I love. I'm delighted in him. I approve of him, I love him, I adore him. You are my son, I'm well pleased. I delight in you. Well, that's Jesus. Obviously God's going to say that about his son. Oh yeah? Well, if you look at Romans chapter 8, the same thing is said for every single Christian. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit comes into our hearts and bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God. It's not just there. Galatians 4, 6. Because of the gospel, we've been adopted, we've been chosen. God has put his Spirit into our hearts and convicted us of our need of a rescuer, of a saviour who is Jesus Christ. And so now we can cry out, sometimes with tears down our faces, sometimes with confidence and assurance, sometimes saying this is too good to be true, but we still say it. We can say, Abba, Father. We have the right to be children of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And what does the Holy Spirit do? 
He takes that truth and he makes it real to us. He takes that truth objectively and makes it subjective. He makes us feel it and sense it and enjoy it. One of the many works of the Holy Spirit, his person and his work, is to make the truth of Jesus real to us, the beauty of Jesus clear to us, the importance of Jesus magnificent to us and and undeniable to us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes God's truth that he delights in his Son, he approves of his Son, and he says, I approve of you in him in just the very same way. John 14 to 16, the, the golden passages in the Bible, Romans 8 as well, on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I long to leave you. I'm sad to depart from you, but I need to do that so that I can send to you the comforter, so that I can send to you the assurer, I can send to you the convictor, the teller of truth, the bringer of justice, the bringer of joy, so that what I've told you, he will make real and unignorable to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He will come and take what is true and make it real on your heart. There's a man called Thomas Goodwin. He put it like this. The picture's on the screen. He said, I want you to imagine a scene. There's a father and a son walking down a, a pathway. Now, the father and the son have an intimate relationship. So just out of joy, the father picks up his son, picks him up off the ground, and embraces him, delights in him, loves him. For what reason? Just because he loves him. This one's to pick him up. I love you. He looks him in the eye, and then he puts him down, and they hold hands, and they keep on walking together. Thomas Goodwin says, what has changed? Has the status of the child changed when he's picked up by his father? Has he changed his name? Has he changed his legal inheritance? No, no, no. It's all the same. So what has changed? What has changed is the son feels the embrace of his father. He picks him up, he puts his arms around him, he looks him in the eye and says, I love you. I accept you, I approve of you, I delight in you. I'm so proud of you. And then he puts him down and they hold hands. What's changed? Nothing's changed. Everything's changed. Everything's changed because he feels his love in a unique way, in an intimate way. He's reassured of his father's smile. He feels his father's embrace and maybe even his heartbeat. No difference. There's all the difference in the world because he feels and senses what is objectively true is now subjectively. It's emotions. He feels it. He feels his father's embrace. In his arms, he's feeling his father's embrace. When the Holy Spirit comes on every believer in a fullness, you sense your father's smile. You sense his embrace. You enjoy his delight in you. You're amazed at his grace. You're assured because of what Jesus has done about your standing in Jesus that no one can take away the work of the Holy Spirit. When you can say to your heart, if someone this powerful, God, loves me this much because of the work of the cross, if he delights in me, if he's gone to infinite lengths to rescue me, and save me and deliver me from a certain future of of his justice. I now uh, have a future that is certain of joy. 
It's as if you're drunk, says verse 13. It gives you a, a freedom and a joy that people will look on you and think, there's something in, no inhibitions. There's something that doesn't uh, control you in the same way as normal. There's a, there's a joy and an obsession in you that I don't have. You must be drunk. Let's talk about being drunk. They were so happy they were speaking the gospel without any inhibition. They were so happy they didn't care what people thought. They were so happy they weren't afraid of anything. So let's talk about being drunk. Being drunk, you take alcohol to, to deaden the senses. You want to suppress reality. You perhaps want to escape. And then you want to experience something else. You suppress what's true. You're under the influence of alcohol or another substance and then you want to be filled with joy. Yeah, you don't dim your senses for another reason. That's not what is said here. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, other people might think your, your inhibitions have gone. You're not bound by the opinions of other people. What power is there in you? But when the Holy Spirit comes, he doesn't come to suppress reality. You get the clearest sense of reality you've ever had. You're not suppressed in any way. All limits are off in terms of control of other people's opinions because you know that God loves you. The one who moved heaven and earth literally to make you his child, he adores you. So you're not suppressed by a substance. Actually, it's the very opposite. When the Holy Spirit comes, you see reality for what it really is. And it fills you with joy and inhibitions that have always, well, you've always longed for. You're not controlled by anyone else. You're under the control, under the influence of the life-giving Spirit of God. With joy and hope and peace. Self-control, gentleness, and so on. It's an inner wonder from this outside power. God, heaven, coming to earth. But then that gives you a universal message, thirdly. A universal message. This third mark of spirit-filledness, this fuel, it says verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Down in verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now here's what's interesting. This is not the normal word that Paul uses for tongues, for a joy-filled expression under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the control of the Holy Spirit. But you're taken up in a way beyond yourself. That always requires interpretation if it's to be helpful to the body of God, the church of God. It's a different word here. Paul talks about tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and uh, 13 and 14, that section. But in verse 11, look at what happened. Look at what they're consumed by. It's a different word and it means the wonders of God. When the Spirit comes, they are consumed with a joy. They want to shout and uh, share and speak about the wonders of God, the mighty works of God. You might have that translation, or the mighty actions of God. It's a word that means they are obsessing about, focused on, consumed by the miraculous acts of God in salvation. That's what they're captured by as the Holy Spirit fills their hearts. The same word is used in the Old Testament when God opens up the Red Sea to rescue his people out of Egypt. In the New Testament, same word is used in other places to say it's the gospel. It's about Jesus coming from heaven to earth. It's about Jesus being raised from death to life at the resurrection. 
is about Jesus ascending to heaven. It's the gospel, it's the wonderful works, the mighty acts of God. And so the third aspect of being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be joyfully obsessed by God and the gospel. That's what it means for the church to go to the ends of the earth with what message? With this message. And they're consumed in them. Joy saturation is happening on the day of Pentecost. Notice as well, it'll be a long sermon, this first presentation of the gospel is to not just one culture or people group. It's very important. Look at verse 5. In Jerusalem there were men from every nation under heaven. Look at verse 6. There was a great multitude or a great crowd. Then verse 9 to 11, this list that Michelle read so well, it's a long list of people. In other words, the gospel does not come to one specific group of people. That's significant. Jews had come as normal from all over the known world to Jerusalem for this celebration and others. For this one, it was the celebration of Pentecost, what God did in the Old Testament. And the gospel is preached to every people group who were there at the same time. In other words, there's no hierarchy. There's no culture that's better than the other. There's no language that's more significant than the other. No culture can say, we heard it first. Think about Islam. When a country becomes predominantly Islamic, there is a, an acceptable uh, culture, an Islamic culture is imported in terms of language, in terms of dress, in terms of values. There's a unified worldwide Islamic culture that's not true of Christianity, and that's because of Pentecost. If you're an African and you become a Christian, you don't become a European Christian. You become a renewed African who's a Christian. If you become a Christian from Asia or uh, Europe or America, you don't become a different culture. Your culture is renewed as you become a Christian. Christianity does not steamroller over culture or language. We haven't all got to read Arabic. The Bible can be translated to every tribe, tongue and nation, which means no to pride. No to saying, we always have 50-minute sermons in our culture. We always sing for two hours in our culture. No to pride, yes to humility. Different expressions of the truth of God in different cultures for the praise of God. What's going on when the Spirit comes? It brings unity. It doesn't bring disunity. And so verse 6, what's going on is the question. We hear them declaring the gospel of God in our own tongues. When you've got churches, when you've got denominations who are dependent, they're reliant upon the power of God seen in the work of the Spirit, which exalts the work of Christ, those churches, those denominations are multiracial. They're not monolithic, they're multicultural. There's room for different expressions of worship. How about us? Power from the outside, inner wonder, universal message. But then there's also a new mediator to finish up. There's a new mediator. What do I mean? Look at verse 1. I mean, why does God choose this day? Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So God could have sent the Holy Spirit 
the third person of the Trinity on day 49. Okay? Or day 51 after Passover. I mean, wh- why? Wh- why, uh, why day 50? There's symbolism going on here that's so rich throughout the Bible. The symbolism that ties into the whole of the Bible as God sends his spirit 50 days after Jesus has ascended. Because it's 50 days when Jesus, uh, rather God sent uh, his spirit to his people in the Old Testament, so to speak. It's 50 days when God spoke, rather, on Mount Sinai, having rescued his people from slavery, he comes and ministers to his people on Mount Sinai. Let's compare and contrast. When you've got Pentecost in the New Testament and Sinai in the Old Testament, a real manifestation of the power and presence of God that comes from the heavens to earth, this is what happens. God comes down. He came down at Sinai. He gave the law. He comes down at Pentecost. He gives the gospel. He comes down in fire and cloud. He comes down in wind and spirit. And in both places, in Mount Sinai, you've got a mediator. God spoke with such holy power. The people said, turn it down, turn it off. We cannot come to the living God and live. Moses, please will you go up and intercede for us as a man on the mountain? And then here we have Jesus Christ, as great as Moses was. We have a new mediator, a new man on the mountain, a new person to stand between the power of God and the people of God, who is Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a man, he was God and man. He wasn't someone who just prayed for his people like Moses did, as great as that was. He's someone who died for the sins of his people. He gave his life. And so as we think about Pentecost, don't just think about Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, as Chris prayed so clearly. We need to go further back. We need to go back to Genesis chapter 10, chapter 11. There we read a long, even longer list of nations where the people got together, the people got together to say, we want to do away with God. We don't need God. We can build for ourselves a city. We can build a name. We can build a reputation. We don't need to honour God. We can honour ourselves. The Tower of Babel, a new religion, a new worship, a new God, you could say, themselves and their own abilities. And so God judges them by confusing themselves, confusing their languages and scattering them on the face of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, we have the miracle of Pentecost. Why did God choose this day? All these different languages were there together, but now they could understand each other. They were not confused. They were not separated. They were being brought back together because judgment that they deserved had been taken by a man on another mountain called Calvary. And so judgment wasn't needed anymore. The fire of God's wrath came down on Jesus so we could receive the fire the warmth of his love in our hearts. See, having the right fuel in your car is really important. If not, you can just kangaroo hop down the road. It can break. It's very expensive. But at Pentecost, God fills, he fills his people with his spirit. Promised power, promised life that's found only in the Holy Spirit. Why? To empower his people to do his work to the ends of the earth. 